but I put an insert in because there are several quotes I want to read, and I think you'll find it helpful. It's hard to listen to quotes as a person in the uh, congregation, and it's just easier to try to listen and read along. So I'm going to be moving through this uh, pretty much as the way it's written out here, and I think you'll be helped by the information and also having it with you as you go home to try to wrestle through some of these issues. The book of Ecclesiastes has a verse in it, Ecclesiastes 9.12, and it says this, As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times. And so essentially that's what's happened here in the book of Habakkuk, that a man has been trapped by evil times. And you may feel that way in your life today, or you may feel that way in your life at some point, that you just somehow have been swept up into a point in history where you're trapped by evil times. And that's how Habakkuk thinks. And we started again this little book uh, named after the prophet. He lived in around 600 B.C. during the end of the reign of Judah. And as Judah was coming to a close... He got sort of this last glimpse of what it could be under this great King Josiah who brought in the Word of God and the people began to live underneath the Word of God and there was a great revival, but just as soon as Josiah died, then the country reverted back to corruption and wickedness. And and so Habakkuk's living here in the closing of Judah and he's looking around at his own people. He's a, he's a pastor in his pulpit, and he's evaluating his own congregation. And he prays this prayer in chapter 1, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. So Habakkuk is praying and he's asking the Lord, how long are you going to tolerate this behavior? Not not from the culture out there, but the culture in here. How long is it that your own people are going to be able to get get away with this wickedness? And he's crying out to the Lord in this first prayer. And then God answers him in verse 5 through 11. And he says, Habakkuk, I'm going to address the wickedness of my people. And I'm going to do that by sending an even more wicked people. And they're going to run your people out of their homes and even out of their whole country. And you can see sort of this cruel description that Habakkuk uses or God uses in verse 15. The Babylonians will bring God's people out with a hook. And that's a reference to the, actually the way they would leave their captives out of, uh, into, out of the city or into their home city is they would run a string through the lower lip of all their captives and they'd pull them along. Or they'd put them in a net and they'd drag them into the city. And they'd say, we've conquered these people. And that was literally happening or going to happen uh, and did happen when the Babylonians came in and captured the people of God. And so Habakkuk obviously is now bewildered by God's response, and he comes with even a bigger complaint. I mean, he had a complaint going in, 
And now that he's gotten God's answer, now he's actually got a bigger problem. I mean, he may have been one of these people who said, you know, I wish I'd never even prayed about that. I mean, because I just don't really want to know that answer. If I hadn't prayed about it, maybe God wouldn't have responded. And so Habakkuk demands an answer. And God says, Habakkuk, if I give you the answer, you won't believe it. And he says, well, give it to me. And he gives it to him, to him and Habakkuk says, I don't believe it! And he was like, well, that's exactly what I told you was going to happen. And so Habakkuk has this second prayer, and that's the text that we're really using this morning. Habakkuk uh, raises a very common problem and that is he looks at God rightly, and he comes up with these characteristic traits They're here in the text. You are everlasting. You are holy. You are a rock. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. These are all the things that he's praying, and he sees the Lord this way, and he understands that's a truth, but then he turns and he looks at his world, And it just seems like all he sees is evil. He sees evil inside the church, and he sees evil outside the church. And he's sort of like this man caught in this tension. He's looking at the world that he lives in. He's looking at the Lord, and he's asking this question. God, how could you in your infinite goodness and power create and uphold a world where there is sin, evil, and suffering? Now, my guess is that's a question you've asked at some point. If you haven't, you just haven't lived long enough because you will ask that question. God, I'm looking at you, and what I see is this infinite power and this infinite uh, glory and this infinite goodness, and I'm looking at your creation, and somehow you're upholding this thing you're created, cre- you have created, but it's full of sin and evil and suffering. And how do those two things go together? And so, this is a particularly big question for anybody who's a theist. Anybody who believes in God has to ask, well, how do these things happen? Because they're easy to see. One theologian put it this way, this problem has occupied the attention of some of the greatest minds of the Christian church. Intellects of such such stature as Augustine and Aquinas, none of them was able to put the problem to rest finally and completely. Well, that helped me today because then I didn't feel like I had to put the question to rest finally and completely. If Augustine and Aquinas wasn't, weren't going to be able to do it, then I felt certain I was not going to be able to do it. But I think what will be helpful as we sort of walk through this passage is to try to come at this problem from two different angles. One of, one of the angles is just touch on how the Bible represents God intersecting with evil. And then the other angle is to just see how Habakkuk responds at the very end of his prayer, chapter 2, verse 1. So we want to touch on just how the Bible looks at this issue and, and see how it is in the Scriptures. And I'm going to call this the, <clears throat> the thin air section. When you, when you talk about certain aspects of God and you're trying to get your human brain wrapped around them, you're trying to elevate your ability to think you're going to get up into some thin air sometimes. And you know how it is if you get up into real thin air, you start getting dizzy and things don't quite seem to fit together like they do down on the ground. And so there's some aspects that you and I as creatures would understand, 
you know what, there's, when I start trying to think like God, I'm gonna, it's going to be pretty thin air up here. And I'm going to try to use pictures that maybe don't fit together or things don't quite work together. And so when we're just going to try to look at the Bible and try to hold some things together that may feel like, hey, this is thin air. So if you're not, a, you're not, if you're not good in thin air, then just wait because we'll get back down to the ground and we'll get to a place that I think everybody will understand, okay, th- I understand this. Everybody's going to get where Habakkuk is in the end. But I want to try to come at this first part as how God intersects evil. According to the Bible, the purpose or design of creation is to give glory to God. According to the Bible, the purpose and design of creation is to give glory to God. And so, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God. Everything is built for pointing to the glory of God. And let me just read a few Bible verses here. Some of them you'll find familiar. Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Exodus chapter 9, God is speaking with Pharaoh. And he tells Pharaoh this, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth, but I have raised you up for this very purpose. And then here's his purpose. That I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So even when when God is working through this evil person, Pharaoh, it's really to bring glory to God's name. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it how? All for the glory of God. So you're talking about the smallest thing, eating, drinking, whatever you do. We're not just saying when you're in church you're bringing glory to God. We're saying any time you're out there, the purpose of creation is really to point back to God, to, to make Him real, to give Him weight. Luke 11.2 Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, say this. Our Father who is in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. The very first part of the prayer is to make sure everybody's on the same ground. That we're on the ground and He's not. He, His name is above every other name. And so the very first part of this prayer is we're understanding that we're really existing to give glory to God. We're going to talk about temptations and debts or trespasses or sins or bread. We're going to talk about all that in this prayer. But the first thing that we need to have an orientation to is everything is meant to give glory to God. John chapter 12, Jesus is right before the cross. And he has this last prayer. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So what is the purpose of the cross? To glorify God. It has great effects on us. It is a wonderful thing for us. But what's its main purpose? The main purpose is to glorify God. So that's one piece. We could list a hundred more Bible passages here. But it's clear when you read the Bible 
that the highest good is not our happiness. The highest good is not our holiness. The highest good is the glory of God. And so we can say the Bible is a God-centered book. It's really for you to understand and know God and give Him glory. But here's what becomes a difficulty for some of us is we go to the Bible thinking it's a book for ourselves. And so you just go, God, you must want something from me today. And you flip through your Bible because you don't have a good Bible reading plan. You just land here and say, this is the word that God wants for me to have today. And I'm not saying he can't use that kind of brokenness. But it's really for God. When you read the Bible, it's for you to understand who God is and so you can give Him greater glory, not for you to understand yourself better. It's a very self-centered viewpoint. And so the Bible is very God-centered. He's taking us to Himself. Now, because the Bible is very God-centered and we're here for the glory of God, I want you to listen to, and you can read this uh, quote by Charles Hodge, a great 19th century theologian. It's written on your handout. Listen, listen to what he says. The glory of God being the great end of all things, we are not obliged to assume that this is the best possible world for the production of happiness. Alright? If, if the glory of God is the great end of all things, then here are things that we should understand. We should not assume that this is the best possible world for the production of happiness or even securing the greatest degree of holiness among rational creatures. No, instead this world is wisely adapted for the end for which it was designed, namely the expression of the glory of God. This is so helpful. It may be safely asserted that a universe constructed for the purpose of making God known is far better is a far better universe than one designed for the production of human happiness. That that is just such a critical critical understanding. It is not going to take away your pain. It's going to reorient your pain around the right object. Because what happens is when I get in pain, what I'm saying is I'm just not that happy. I'm not happy about this situation. And in pain, I become very self-centered. It's all about fixing this particular problem so I, I can go on to, to real life, which is happiness. Does that make sense? But what's real life? It's not happiness. It's the glory of God. That's real life. So that you can live in unhappiness. And I'm not saying we won't, won't want to solve some of these issues. But I'm saying you can live in great unhappiness and glorify God. How do we know that? Well, a thousand reasons, but what's the best way to know it? Right here. What was this for? It was for the glory of God. This was the most massive evil that ever took place on this planet, and it came out to be glorifying to God. So it's possible to live in unhappiness and to say it can be used still for the glory of God. That's the whole point. It's not for ourselves. It's really for God. And so He's designed this world to make that happen. And we should assume that if there was another way to make that happen, He would have done it. 
but he didn't. So this is the best possible way according to God. Augustine has this quote, God allowed sin in order to show his attributes and thus glorifying himself, deeming it to be more befitting his power and goodness to bring good out of evil than to prevent evil from coming into existence. This is the thin air section. This creates a lot of questions. We're not going to be able to get to the answer of all these, but we're just trying to look at what the Bible has to say and try to wrap our minds around this. And so I think it's helpful to have sort of the right mindset when we think about the creation of this world. Sometimes we might have this picture in our mind. God created a good world. Humanity was created. And humanity, you and I, we messed it up. And since Genesis chapter 3, God's been scrambling to try to make something good out of these lemons that we've now passed back to Him. Does that make sense? Lots of people have this idea that it was good, that's the way God wanted it to be, but we came in, we messed it up, and now He's been he's spending the last five or ten or however many thousands of years scrambling behind us all over the globe to try to make something good out of the mess that we keep making. That's not true. That's not a good way to think. That's not a biblical way to think. God is not scrambling. Amen to that. I mean, if we had a God, imagine if you believed in a God who was scrambling around the universe. You'd probably want to trade Him in for a better model. Would you not? And so we don't serve a God who's scrambling. We may not understand all that He's doing, but one thing we can understand is He's not scrambling around after us going, oh golly, I didn't realize Paul was going to do that. Now I'm going to come in and fix this. That's not how He operates. And really to get a grip on that, I just want to have two Bible verses uh, before us. Revelation, again, they're printed in your outline. It's helpful to look at these. Revelation 13.8, John writes this, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He's in the middle of this thought, and he stops and he says, okay, there's people whose names have not been written in this book that belongs to the Lamb. We know that as Christ, who was slain from the creation of the world. So we can tell right here from Revelation 13 that before the creation of the world, before the first day, there was a book. And it's called the Book of Life. And there were names in that book that Jesus was going to come and save. That makes sense? Before Adam even existed, before creation even began, there was a book. And Jesus was going to come, have to come and save the names of the people in that book. Before the creation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 God saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, praise the Lord, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace, now listen to this, Paul inserts this, this grace was given us in Christ when? Grace was given before the beginning of time. How is that possible if God didn't understand what was going to happen 
when we got into the world. So everything in the world, even the existence of evil, is wisely created by God for the end for which it was designed, which is the expression of the glory of God. So, how is it that God is in control of sovereignly in control of everything and yet there's still evil. We see that he, he's bringing these things together for his glory. And again, if we ask ourselves, well, I, don't, I just can't believe in a God like that, then it's at least helpful to think of the opposite. Well, what would God be like if he wasn't like that? If evil has caught him off guard, what kind of God would you be serving at that point? Now, that's good, good lunchtime discussion. Second thing I want to make clear here is really restating it from the Bible is that God is not the cause of sin. It might be something you would think after his understanding his sovereignty. But 1 John 2, 16, we talked about this this summer. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and what he does, this comes not from the Father but from the world. James 1, 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one, each person is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Wayne Grudem says this, again, in your outline, helpful. God creates all things that happen, but he does so in such a way that he upholds our ability to to make willing, responsible choices that have real and eternal results for which we are held accountable. So God, the Bible supports the sovereignty of God over all things and our responsibility for evil. And you might wrestle and say, I just don't see how those things come together. And that's what I'm saying. You're going to get up into some thin air up here and you're just going to have to say, God's seeing things in ways that I just can't quite put together, but He's working on something that I may not be able to see. And so again, I want to point to a couple of biblical examples of this. Genesis chapter 37 through 50 talks about a man named Joseph. Joseph, this young son of Jacob, who was had the coat of many colors. You remember this story? And he's not liked by his, old, his 12 older brothers. And so he is beaten up and thrown into a well. Remember this? Thrown down into a well. We just got to get rid of him, put some blood on his robe and tell the dad that he got killed by a wild animal. And then they decide, well, hey, here comes sort of a, some traders going down to Egypt. We'll, hear, we'll just sell him into Egypt. And he gets sold down and he goes into Egypt and he's there for a number of years and he has some very unusual circumstances. He's put into prison and he finally rises to a position of power. And he's a very bright man because of the grace of God and he's now saving this nation, Egypt, from a famine. And he's also saving the surrounding countries. And the brothers who are starving now, many years later, come down and they're looking for food. And who do they run into? Joseph. And they don't recognize him at first. And you know this verse, when they find out who Joseph is, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He's talking to his brothers and he says this, You intended harm to me. You meant evil. You did evil. 
He's not, he's not negating any. He's just putting all the blame right on them. I want you to know that I know that you did evil. What you did was wrong. Period? No, not period. Not, and and well, what, since that happened, God started scrambling around trying to get something good to come out of this. No. But God intended it for good. Even in the midst of your evil intent, God had a good intent. And maybe we couldn't see it for years. Maybe you couldn't see it for a long Saturday afternoon. But the most evil intents that we must take responsibility for, God can intend for good. Well, this points us to the Gospel. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter's giving his first sermon. He's preaching to the Jewish people who were responsible for putting Jesus to death, the Jews and the Roman people here. And he's saying, this man, Jesus, delivered up. Now listen to how Jesus got to the cross. Acts 2, 2.23. Delivered up by the predetermined, planned, and foreknowledge of God. I mean, that couldn't be any clearer. Peter couldn't have used any stronger language. But you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. You see, right in one sentence, you had God's complete sovereignty over the worst evil and man's full responsibility for putting Christ to death. Now, you might say, I just can't seem to get those two things together, and all I can say is, the Bible puts them together without any kind of contradiction. And so we're just taking the Bible and saying, okay, I'm just trusting in this, that it's possible that God could be working in ways that I just simply can't understand. I I can't quite get my mind around how this is working. And we see that in the cross. The most spectacular evil in all human history was part of a predetermined plan, and yet the apostles clearly lay the blame at the choices of sinful men. So three things that I think are helpful here. First, just trying to think through this. This is more a little bit more practical. When you live in evil times, remember that God is in control. You may not see it. You may not understand what He's doing, but He is in control. Number two, we should never give in to the lie that life is absurd or meaningless because of evil. Now, that may not be that difficult for you at this point, but if you lived in Romania and went to an orphanage every day with 16-year-old girls who could have been healthy, but just because of the lack of care, now lay in a bed, and they still smile when they go outside, I mean, you have a tougher time. Why did this happen? So many things could have prevented this from happening. And we're going to have a lot of questions on those kinds of things. And we need to remember that God may be at work in ways that we can't see. And life is not absurd or meaningless just because we're witnessing evil. Three, that He is bringing all things together for good. So, when you fall on evil times, God is for you. 
can remember that. Because I think so many people think, He's out to get me. Because you bump your head and what do you do? Oh, I must have deserved, I did something to deserve it. God is for you. He is working for your good. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Where? Right here. So you are not experiencing any wrath. You may be experiencing discipline. And it may feel like wrath at some times. But He is working for your good. He is doing something that you may not be able to see that is for your good. Now, I realize we're up in this thin air and it's sometimes difficult to see that, that, that God could be doing something that seems painful, but yet actually is going to work for good. But I think anybody here who's a parent can understand this. Can you not? My daughter, Morgan, had some issues where she needed an x-ray when she was one year old. And so we took her to the hospital for what, what was a relatively routine x-ray, but wasn't, what wasn't routine is you had to get a one-year-old to stay still on a cold x-ray machine to lie down. Why the x-ray went over her body. And they need someone to pin her down. And mom couldn't do it. We didn't want a stranger to do it. So I pinned her down. She's screaming. And the one she's screaming for, what is he doing? He's pinning her down. And I just said, it's for your own good. You, you don't know it. You can't see it right now. But it's possible that you could feel this way. You could feel like, I'm being pinned down. And the very person I'm screaming out for is the one I'm finding out is pinning me down. And what I, can I say? He pinned His own Son to the cross. For good. Maybe a little bit more helpful is Habakkuk. He's going to fall in love with this guy. Because he doesn't respond, he's not responding to these explanations. I don't think he would necessarily have been particularly helped by a theological explanation. I think he's just looking back at God and he's saying what you say and what I say in the point of pain. I don't get you. You don't make sense to me. And you know, when I come in at your point of praying and I say, well, let's talk about the theological implications. of You know, my guess is at some point that's helpful because it really is in your thinking. But at that real critical point, what are you saying? God, I don't get the way you're working. And yeah, I know the answers to it, but when I come up across this problem, I just don't get it. Where are you? What are you doing? And so Habakkuk does something that all of us can do. It says it in chapter 2, verse 1. 
I will take my stand. I will station myself. I'm not going to walk away. I can wait. I can wait. I, I have great certainty that somebody came today just to hear that. You can wait. You can trust God. You may not be able to see it. I can't say that you'll see it in your lifetime. But you can wait. You can take your post. Don't don't walk away. Where are you going to go? So Habakkuk waits. He doesn't leave his post. Even though it's God who's going to pin him down. Psalm 37, 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. I put His word, and in His word I put my hope. Isaiah 8, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from me, and yet I will put my trust in Him. Two, two more things before I conclude. Waiting helps develop humility. Most of the time you don't know what God's up to. You really don't. And you can just humbly say, God, I, I don't always know what you're up to, but I can wait. I'm, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to blow up. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to stand my post, even if the times are bewildering. The second thing waiting does is it crushes the idol of yourself. Waiting crushes the idol of yourself. See, when you're freaking out and you're saying, I don't get you, it, it, this, it just can't work out this way, you're needing to be omniscient. And God's saying, hey, you can let that aside. I'm omniscient. You can trust in a God who knows everything, and you don't have to know everything. And so waiting crushes the idol of yourself. Habakkuk is a, such a great example. He wrestles with God. He brings his real prayers before the Lord. Not, not superficial, not on the surface. He says, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. He's learning how to trust God in evil times. He's not gonna, he's, he doesn't have a good trajectory. He's going to get caught in the net. He's going to get dragged away. But he's going to wait. He's going to wait and see how is it that God can bring salvation out of violence. And now he sees. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, it's a difficult sermon. It might raise more questions than it answers. I don't think here Habakkuk gets his questions answered. He just is willing to wait. And trust in a God who is 
working for good. Lord, I, I, I am praying particularly for the few people here who feel pinned down by the one person they're screaming out to for help. Oh, how difficult that is to stay in that place. So I pray for your comfort in a way that only they could really receive and understand. That they would continue to trust. That they would continue to follow. In Jesus' name.